0: you have your Bibles, let's open to Matthew chapter six. I'll jump around a bit. Um, you know we're so blessed here at the worship. I was just back there and I was just thinking. Um, I was trying to think straight because, you know, sometimes just being present here, um, your choice to be here on a Wednesday night—not um, the choice of uh, most of the world—but the reward. Um, of coming is his presence, right? And I just go touched by the Lord as I was sitting there and just listening to the words of each of those songs and just identifying with um, each of those songs and um, yeah, God is good and God is here. I want to tell a story just because um, maybe if I don't, I might weep again. Um, You might have a little bit of that tonight. Uh, as usual. Um, We were just at my daughter's house. My oldest daughter is Emma and she's just about to turn 23 and um, we went up to visit her in Washington State. Uh, Sad, she lives far away and she's about to have a baby. So we went to go visit her and um, we had such a wonderful time. But the first day we got right into it. She had a plan for the whole week and so many things going on and sorts and so on. She cooked for us and so on and so forth and so proud of how she's becoming a mom and such a great wife. Um, but somehow I came down with this stomach bug and it was not her cooking uh, cause have been dealing with it for like three weeks and it just like grabs my stomach and just like rips my insides. And so that first night, um, I went to bed quite early and um, the pain didn't subside till the next morning and so we were talking about it in the morning and uh, she was there and uh, whatnot and she looked over at me goes dad you are such a floozy and i just thought do you even know what that word means she's like yeah you're like a weakling you're like so soft like no not not even close she has a a way of different words and mixing them up but um It was funny. It was funny. I still laugh at it because uh, we're going to look at someone here before we get into Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 7. Because tonight, um, as we're going through the Sermon on the Mount and as Jesus is dealing with the heart and Sermon on the Mount chapter 5, 6 and 7 of Matthew, Jesus is really getting to the very heart and the core of what it means to have the character and the conduct of a Christian. And I can imagine this wasn't any feel-good type of sermon when Jesus was on the mount there and giving it to these people. It was something brand new that they were hearing. But I imagine, just like it says in Hebrews chapter 4, that the word of God, the word from Jesus' lips, was cutting uh, right down to the very marrow of the soul. And we've gone through some pretty tough studies the last couple weeks dealing with the Beatitudes when Stan went through uh, those uh, verses on how we're blessed. Um, being poor in spirit, mournful, merciful, pure in heart, uh, ended with persecution. Um, And then we've talked a little bit about um, this idea of dealing with anger, loving our enemies, um, and so on and so forth, dealing with divorce and remarriage, uh, dealing with issues of purity. And Jesus was going right to the heart of these individuals and saying like, you've heard it said this, but I'm telling you this, and he wasn't giving a new idea or new religion, he wasn't giving a new theory or principles that he wanted people to follow, he was just giving principles and he was giving perspective, God's heart for God's people. And so tonight when we look at Matthew chapter six, we're gonna look at this idea of worship and um, we're gonna look at three spiritual disciplines that Jesus goes through and I thought Um, about this story in Luke chapter seven. I've been meditating on this for the last uh, few weeks, um, and you know the story. Jesus was invited, um, and I'll paraphrase it, you don't have to turn there, Uh, but Jesus was invited by a Pharisee, a religious man, to have dinner with him, and there was not a real clear reason as to why he was invited, it just said this man wanted to spend time with him, you know, in the past, Jesus was tested by some of these people or he was challenged by some of these people. They didn't really want his friendship or his company, uh, which oftentimes when people would invite people to dinner or to their table in that culture, it meant we're here to commune together and have friendship together. And I don't sense that this was the heart of this man. But you can imagine people were getting situated and the guy probably set out his best um silverware and sorts, and the food was about to go uh, out onto the table, and uh, in those days, the wine was being uh, given out, and so forth and so on, and someone who was not invited to the party shows up, and it got awkward really quick, you can imagine, because this gal comes in and it doesn't give a description of what she was dressed like, but we know a bit of her sordid past. That she was a person of ill repute. She didn't have a very good reputation. She um, probably was known in the community for um, her licentiousness or whatever it might be. But I imagine, prior to getting into what happens here, that this woman had an experience and encounter with Jesus. And just like many, as we see in the scriptures, is when people had an encounter with Jesus, there was a a brokenness that happened in their lives and a a remaking that happened in their lives. You can imagine, I have friends that, you know, you might have a friend that you know that is so close to the presence of God that when you're in their presence, you just feel like you're in the presence of Jesus. And there's something about it that goes on your mind and it's like, you kind of go and do some re-examination of what have I been doing that I shouldn't be doing and what I've been saying that I shouldn't be saying. But I just wanna look at this woman's response. She had, I believe, an, an initial encounter with Jesus, and she had experienced grace and mercy, the removal of shame, the redemption of her sin, the forgiveness of those acts. And she felt the cleansing of her heart. It says there when she came in, she brought an alabaster flask, which was a small jar, clay jar with a tall neck on it, and it had a, I guess it had a cork on it. In it would be this fragrance of uh, anointing oil or ointment, a very expensive uh, thing in those days. And it says in verse 38, it says, standing behind him at his feet, she began to weep and wet his feet with her tears. He wiped them with the hair of her head. Kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. And we know the Pharisee's response was: He said in his mind, or maybe he said out loud, "Is if Jesus knew, and if he is a prophet, he would know who this person is and who this is doing this to him, because in those days, if you touch someone with that type of character or with that type of past, you couldn't go into the temple." And so this guy was concerned that Jesus wasn't a prophet or he didn't know who this person was, but Jesus knew exactly who this person was. And so he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50, and when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both people. And he says, which one do you suppose um, will love him more? And initially, Simon says, well, obvious, the guy who owed him the most money. And Jesus' response here, listen to this. After he goes through what Simon didn't do because of his religiosity, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And this woman gives us this incredible picture of worship. I want to just kind of pull out a few principles. First, she pours out all she has in worship. It's as if it's coming from the depths of her being, her own, just the very soul of who she is. It comes out in gratefulness, in joy, in just the weeping over her forgiveness and the redemption from sin. We're saying tonight about how he's pulled us out of the pit, that he was the only one that could, could bridge that chasm. Psalm 51, when David was talking about this in his own life, he said, if you would receive sacrifices, I would give it. But a broken and contrite heart is what you desire, O God. This woman's worship came from an understanding of who she was and a broken and contrite She was not concerned about others, but she was centered on Jesus. We're gonna talk a little bit about that in Matthew chapter six. How oftentimes we can be tempted to be concerned more about the thoughts or the concerns of others and how we look in our Christianity, how we look in our service, how we look in the way we pray, how we look in the way we give. She wasn't concerned about anything. It was just for her sake, Jesus and her. Sometimes I know I do get caught up in worship here and it's like, I have to forget there's other people in the room because God just so brings us into his presence. Thirdly, all of her worship was in humility and gratefulness. There was no pretense. She didn't want anything from him. She just saw who he was and she honored him for who he was. She had a right view of Jesus. Now his response, and then we'll get into Matthew chapter 6, is honor, forgiveness, and that was her reward. We see the same response in other passages in the scripture, and it says of that woman that would do that, this woman's story and what she has done will be told for ages. And it gives us this beautiful picture of how we see God, how we see ourselves, and how we see worship. Now let's look over at Matthew chapter 6. And i got to rush. Up. I think I took too long there. Now, when we start off in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1, he's going to talk about um, this issue of the heart and how we uh, worship. He's going to deal with uh, three things, as I mentioned earlier. Verses uh, verses 2 through 4, he talks about giving or service. Verses 7 through 15, he's going to talk about, actually 7 through 13, he's going to talk about prayer. And verses 16 through 18, he's going to talk about fasting. These three spiritual ways of worship. Now, I just want to... Start with verse one. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, there's a couple words here I want to just point out. In the first phrase, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. In other versions, it says, beware of practicing your charitable acts or giving your alms. And it's this idea of Be careful of how you live your life, that you're not living it for the reputation or the influence or the applause of others. Now, we live in one of the most narcissistic societies of all history, right? And we live in one of the most narcissistic places in all of the globe, Southern California where reputation is key, right? How people think about me, how I'm perceived, what light am I seen in? When I do something, what do people say about me? Something that's made that incredibly more difficult is social media. And everybody's living their best life on Instagram, Facebook, and be real. It's interesting because I I help out with teaching at the high school class, and we have an ongoing joke of, it's be real time. But oftentimes, when it's be real time, the kids will, like, adjust themselves, and I'm not so real, because I'm concerned about what people think. And Jesus right here, right off, he says, beware, be cautious that you're doing these things out of a fear of man. Proverbs says that the fear of man is a snare. Now, I look at that in two ways, the fear of man, the, the fear and the sense of being afraid of people's opinion. And so we act or we, we adjust our speech or the just way we live our lives according to what we think they might approve of. But I think it's more than that. I think it's reverencing others above God. And that becomes an incredible snare, right? Funny story, when I was um, really new to the faith, um, I would read, because uh, it was really important, we read books, so we read Oswald Chambers and Andrew Murray and all these guys, and they told you like about the devotional life, and I had this picture in my mind that a really, truly spiritual person gets up at 5 a.m. Well, first of all, you're up till like midnight studying the Word of God, and then you get up at 5 a.m., to pray, and at the time, we had these things called discipleship houses, and so I'd set my alarm at 5 a.m. to pray, and so my alarm would go off, I'd get on my knees on the side of my bed, and for about 30 minutes, I'd fall asleep. (laughs) I wanted to seem spiritual because I thought that was right, but it didn't actually honor God because it was the fear and reverence of man. Now, he says there, if we do this, we will have no reward. Now, real quick, the rewards that I think that Jesus is talking about is purpose, presence, and power. I'm going to give those a little bit more clarity uh, as we go on. But he also, throughout Scripture, talks about these five crowns. Now, we don't have time to get into the five crowns that Jesus is going to give out to various different people. That's maybe your homework, to go through the Scriptures in the New Testament and figure out what are those five crowns. But one of my favorite crowns is Second Timothy chapter four, verses eight. I'm going to read that real quick. Paul, at the end of his life, says this: "I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, laid up for me is the crown of righteousness, which is uh, which the Lord." The righteous judge will award to me on that day not only to me but all who have loved his appearing the reward of worship is a crown why because we've loved and longed for his appearing i think these crowns are both present and future now we have to go a little bit quicker. Now, it says here in verses 2, And when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, you have received uh, their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that you, in your giving, may be in secret, and your Father who seeks, sees you in secret, will reward you. Now, There's two principles here that I I was uh, considering. First of all, we have this idea of the needy. Now, oftentimes when we look at Scripture right here, when he says, when you give to the needy, and caveat, he's going to use this word when, both in the giving and the prayer and the fasting. So he's assuming that we're giving. He's assuming that we're praying. He's assuming that we're fasting. The important thing I was drawing out from this is as we give to the needy, as we serve those that are in need, and this could be anybody with any type of need, the only only thing that we would find is that I have the, the, the solution to your need. But how do we see others? And how we see others will determine how we serve others. Jesus is getting at the heart of that. Do we look at others with disdain or a condescending look? You know, the last couple of years, we've had so much, um, gosh, division in our country and, and so many things going on with um, marriage and transgender and homosexuality. And the last couple of years, I was noticing, like, there's something going on in my heart towards people. I don't know if you experienced that. And like I would see someone like um, at Starbucks or Target and um, maybe they had a mask on and I didn't believe in masks or maybe um, they were wearing the rainbow flag and I don't believe in that or maybe they were dressed as a guy and they were a girl. Um, I hope this isn't too forward. But I found myself getting a bit angry. Getting a little bit frustrated with that. And I remember in Starbucks one day, and I was looking at this young man that was dressed as a woman, and I thought, oh goodness. And immediately the Holy Spirit said, do you think I look at that person like you do? And that cut to my heart. That's a person in need. That's a person that something is going on that's causing this pain, and something to go on in their lives. When we look at people with God's heart and in God's image, we enter into God's compassion and love for others, and then we have the freedom to love and serve them appropriately. We're not looking to use them. They're not looking, we're not looking to, um, quote-unquote, um, understand me when I say this, minister to them because we have something to, to, to offer them, We love them because they're people made in God's image. Jesus said, or Paul said in Philippians chapter two that we should never look at anyone um, with selfish ambition, but with humility of mind, consider others more important than ourselves. Now he gets into this issue of giving and I want you to turn over 2 Corinthians chapter eight real quick um, as we peruse through this. And this idea of giving and serving, I think, is important to look at them both um, in, in one light, because um, we're going to look here in Second Corinthians chapter uh, eight and nine, just real quickly. It has to deal with giving of money. But I know that years ago um, I read in a book that that also means the giving of your time, your talent or your treasure. It's a matter of the heart. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is dealing with the church in Corinth who had many different things going on. It was quite a messy church, quite a carnal church. But at the beginning of chapter 8, I'm just going to paraphrase some of this, is that Paul commends a very uh, impoverished church, people that had very little to offer. And it said when they heard about the need in a certain area, they begged Paul out of their little means to give and to participate in the mission of God through Paul in this this season. And Paul says this. Why is that? They gave themselves first to God and they then gave themselves fully to us. Isn't that a beautiful picture Of giving. When we we set our lives, our possessions, our heart, our time, talent, and treasure before God, and we recognize that it's his, it frees us to freely give to others. With no sense of how does this look, who will see, but that the reward is giving in the name of Jesus. Now in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 seven, and eight. Let's just look at a quick couple principles. When Paul talks about giving, he says, this is the point. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. There's a mindset there. There's a principle of mindset that we are to sow bountifully. Whether we have or we have not, that whatever we have, just like that widow with two mites, that we're to give out of the goodness of our heart and the worship of God. Each one must give his decided in his heart, not reluctantly, under compulsion, for he loves a cheerful giver. There's also a heart set, and that is that we sow joyfully. There should be some emotion of joy in our giving, whether it's service or it's time or it's money that there's an emotion in us that says, wow, I'm giving out of love and of joy and of service of God. Years and years ago, I was involved in the counting of the tithes and offerings. And I remember this one young man, he was single, didn't have a family, had his own business. And when I'd count all those checks, like the check was so interesting because it was like $173.46. I'm like, how does he come up with the 46 cents? And I can imagine there was this like begrudging of writing out the check, like it was exactly 10%. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's saying like, give in such a way that you don't even know the amount that you're giving. Give joyfully, give abundantly. He then says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. Years ago, that was the scripture I think that Lance gave us um, as a church when we were leaving the uh, warehouse to this building. And we've always been this incredibly like generous uh, ministry. I don't know if you've experienced that, like at the Staken Studies or even in this Maui effort. There's such generosity in this church. And because of that, I think it's always exponentially blessed. That's a principle he says here, that as you give, all grace will abound to you, and you'll have more than you need to continue to give out. As he continues on, I just want to bring out a couple principles. I'll just read them as I've written them. God multiplies your investment. More importantly, if you've ever been a recipient of a gift when you really needed one, I remember when we were married at first and we lived in this small house, and I remember um, regularly there would be an envelope on our porch with cash in it with no name on it. And that brought us such gratefulness to God. When we serve others, when we give to others as if we're giving or serving God, it brings about thankfulness in the lives of other people. And finally, God's glory and his favor are over us. Now, when we have the right heart and we give in the right way we have purpose. That's the reward of that. Let's go back over to Matthew chapter 6. He then goes into prayer and I'm going to summarize some of this. He says "And when you pray, don't pray as the hypocrites. And he uses that word a couple times. Hypocrites was this idea of play actors. It was those people that had masks on but underneath were a different person. It's so easy to do that even within the church that we would focus more on our outward appearance than the inward character of our heart which God really is more concerned about. For the love, they love in, to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners and uh, that they may be seen by others. to lay a city you have received their reward. But when you go and pray, into, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And then when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do for they think that they will be heard for their many words. and do uh, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask. So we have two pictures here. A person that loves to pray out in the public, which God is not against, and a person that likes to use particular phrases. You know, one of the ways in which I learned prayer was about 33 years ago. It was in a broken down warehouse with about 70 or 80 young people between the ages of 17 to maybe about 25, drug addicts, ex-alcoholics, people with broken marriages, people that had just gotten saved. And it was some of the most beautiful, amazing times because no one knew how to pray. We prayed out of desperation. We prayed for people to be healed. We prayed for people to be saved. We prayed for for people to have babies and so forth and so on. And and we saw God work in powerful ways out of our humility and simplicity. Now, as time went on, I noticed when we moved to the building here, uh, we had that Thursday night prayer and it went down to about 12 people. And sometimes maybe we became so sophisticated that those prayers turned into sermons. Or maybe they became like, this gal's kinda like poking at that gal over there in their prayers. One time I think we clocked a guy at 23 minutes. It was like, what is going on here? (laughs) Jesus is against these things, but he says here, pray like this. Now, when we think of prayer, I want you to think of invitation, to communion and intimacy. Now let's just go through the prayer. Our Father in heaven, I'm gonna read it and I'm gonna go back through it, just a few few notes on Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. I know some versions have um, the conclusion for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. I love that version. But Let's just break it down. Our Father, as Jesus gives the disciples this prayer, and it was a disciples' prayer, as Barclay says, no one can really pray this prayer truly without understanding each of these elements of the prayer. Father says that we see God correctly as a loving father, a shepherd. I'm reminded of James where it says God is a good father and every good and perfect gift comes from the father of lights. Who art in heaven, seeing him as greater. we Recognize that he transcends who we are. That he's spiritual. He's a creator and the sustainer of all things holy or hallowed be your name this is the idea that god is separate he's unique in character and personality i love in the book of exodus chapter 34 when god talks about himself he says i'm gracious merciful steadfast in love patient i'm forgiving of the iniquities upon generation upon generation This is this idea, I don't think about when he says holy is your name, think about your character is inexhaustible. Inexhaustible faithfulness, inexhaustible kindness, inexhaustible and unconditional love, and so on and so forth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We we sang that this evening. And this is this identification, I believe, with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The desire for God's kingdom is true kingdom. I spoke a couple weeks ago and we talked about the difference between our idea of kingdom and God's kingdom. But this requires us to relinquish our own kingdoms, to die to ourselves and seek and wish for and desire The kingdom of God. Give us this day our daily bread. God's involved in the details or their basic needs. Whether it's a job, whether it's a parking spot, God's interested in parking spots, even. Whether it's the healing of an individual, whether it's the salvation of a friend, whether it's just basic needs like we don't have anything in the cupboard. I don't have any money to pay the bill. God sees that and can meet that need. But it's also talking about our spiritual needs that we would be fed daily from the Word of God, that the Holy Spirit would empower and anoint us, and that God would give us opportunity to serve Him. Then it gets a little bit more personal, and we'll deal with this in a few moments at a deeper uh, point. But it says, Forgive us as we forgive those in debt to us. The idea here is that we have to come under the understanding of our own need for grace, our own need for forgiveness. We dealt with that when Stan talked about blessed are the poor in spirit, when we're completely bankrupt spiritually. We recognize that without God, we're nothing. And blessed are those who mourn. When we mourn of our, our own sin and we're comforted by the grace the mercy of God. When we are able to encounter this grace and mercy, then we're able to give grace and mercy. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is a simple cry. God, allow us to be victorious over sin. But I think it's also a preparation prayer. God, dwell in us, prepare us, remove things from us so that when we're out there, we can be victorious. Interesting enough, I, I don't read Oswald Chambers very often, but he said this this morning, open your life wide and God will imprint, and God's imprint will be marked on your public life. The reward of personal quiet prayer is his presence. Then he deals with this issue, verse 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Now, I just want to look at a couple scriptures. We want to look back at Matthew chapter 5 and then just a couple scriptures because I think this issue of forgiveness is so incredibly important right now. We live in a world where everybody's offended by everything. And it's crept into the church, right? Offended by what the pastor said, offended by how the leader treated me, right? Or offended by, I didn't get invited to that party, or offended by this or that, whatever, whatever. Matthew chapter five, as we were taught, I'm not sure who taught this passage, it might've been when we were gone. Jesus, in dealing with anger, says this. If you're offering a gift at the altar, and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first, be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. Come to, quick, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser, your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. That's alarming to me. First of all, Jesus says, look, if you're going to church and you realize, man, I'm holding this thing against this person, go deal with that first, so the cistern's open, so the water can flow, and that you can come before God in his presence openly. First be reconciled. Don't hold anything in your heart. When we hold on to things, I've realized this out of experience, maybe you have as well, those things actually hold on to us. We may be holding a grudge, but that grudge is quite holding on to us, and it's killing us from the inside out. Romans chapter 12, verses 18 says, if at all possible, as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. In Matthew chapter 18 Jesus gave us a pattern. First, go to God in prayer when someone offends you, then go to that brother. I find in my own life, and maybe you're the same, we've got to deal with it with others first. Like, how do they see the situation? Am I seeing it correctly? And, you know, this person did this to me. And, yeah, you know what? I should be offended, you know? Well, I'm just going to hold a grudge then. <laughs> it's very clear. Go to God go to that person. Reconciliation through transformation. I heard this phrase years and years ago because or actually it says this pain that's not transformed gets transmitted. The pain that we carry and forgiveness that we carry, the bitterness that we carry gets transmitted to other people. It seeps out of us. Hebrews chapter 12 says, don't let seeds of bitterness take root. The lest they defile many. I think this is an incredible, uh, incredibly important part of this particular passage because I think it clogs up how we see other people. When we hold unforgiveness in our heart or bitterness in our heart, what happens is we begin to, to build walls of mistrust and, 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 and that starts to really isolate us. We're built for community, we recognize that in Jesus' prayer there's no me. It's our Father, our daily bread, our sins. But it also cuts off the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the blessing and favor of God. I'm just gonna read that one more time. When we hold unforgiveness in our heart, it cuts off the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the blessing and favor of God. I recently heard that one pastor was sharing, and I don't remember who it was, it was probably on just some short clip. He says, the biggest hindrance to revival in the church is unforgiveness. One of the things I've been asking myself when I go through some situation, some pain, Three questions. Let's just say this. Are you trying to show me something, God, through this pain? Two, am I, are you trying to allow me to identify with you, Jesus, through this pain? Three, are you trying to do something in my heart? I think if we would start there, then those issues of unforgiveness would resolve themselves because scripturally we would walk in that idea of being a forgiver. Colossians says that we should forgive as we've been forgiven. I love what Pastor Sand said on Sunday. A lot of conflict and a lot of spiritual battles would be handled if we just shut up. (laughs) Deal with God. Lastly, he goes into fasting, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by fa- your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The first reward I was talking about in giving was purpose. When we have the right heart, our, our lives are given purpose to serve others. And we have the right vision of God and others, we have purpose. And this idea of praying and, and setting our lives in the secret place of God and praying correctly, uh, we get the, um, the reward of presence. And here I believe that we get this reward of power. am just gonna end um, this particular portion. I just wanna look over at um, Isaiah chapter 58 and I'll read some scriptures from this. It's interesting, there was a story I read Recently, or maybe I heard it, there was a monk or a, I think it was a Buddhist monk in um, uh, India somewhere, and he was there, and they sit on the streets, and they are doing their prayers or they're doing their religious things, and someone came by and said, uh, you know, a tourist, he said, let me take a picture of you while you're doing your religious stuff. Uh, you're fasting, right? Uh, I'm fasting. And can I take your picture? Yes. And he said, well, let me just, just uh, kind of recreate my ashes, it'll look better in the picture. (laughs) That's the picture here, it's like, look, don't do that stuff. This is the fast that that God honors in Isaiah 58. And I'll just read it and maybe just kind of a couple thoughts. Is this not the fast that you choose to loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke, let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? to bring homeless uh, poor into your house, when you see naked, to cover him, not to hide yourself from your own flesh, then shall your light break forth like dawn. Your healing shall uh, spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of God shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call on on the Lord, and he will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take your yoke from your midst and point the finger and Speak wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness, and your gloom as noonday, and the Lord will guide you continually, and satisfy your desire in scorched places, and make your bones strong, and you shall be watered like a watered garden, verse eleven, and whose waters do not fail, and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall raise up foundations. Uh, Of many generations she should be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. This idea of fasting is is taking anything out of the way that's limiting my vision of God. Is Is it food? Is it a habit? Is it a hobby? Is it a person? Removing anything that eclipses the beauty and the presence of Jesus in our lives. He says when you get really serious about that, not religious, what happens is we, we loosen bonds of wickedness. People go free. People get saved. The hungry are fed. The light of our lives breaks forth like the dawn. Healing happens. Righteousness goes before us, and the glory of God goes behind us. And Then we start to pour ourselves out for others. And It says in verse 11 that when we do that, we truly begin to, to cut away things from our life that limit our vision of God. It says, and the Lord will guide you. He will satisfy you. He'll make your bones strong. You, know, sh- you shall be like a watered garden that never fails. And I love this. I want to just end here. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the breach of streets to dwell in. The book of Isaiah in chapter 43 says that the glory of God shall go across the entire earth and all mankind will see it. I love this beautiful picture when we set our lives perfectly on Christ and we put away things, God begins to move in power in our lives and through our lives and through our ministries and through our families and through our marriages. All these beautiful things come forth. So as we're looking at this passage in in Matthew chapter 6, it just gives us a picture like these invitations from God to come and give and to serve and come and give and pray and come and fast and seek me and this reward of purpose, this reward of presence and this reward of power. I was again just so moved by this evening's worship and just It just seemed like everything that was in my heart here, they were just singing about it. And I just thought like, there's no greater place to be in God's presence. Not practicing his presence, not practicing like we're in his presence, but actually taking the steps as Jesus says here, to remove the barriers, to remove the things that would cause us to be distracted or discouraged or disheartened and go boldly into the throne room of grace. Amen? Amen. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Just so grateful for this this place. So grateful for your church and so grateful, Lord, that you're building your church and nothing will prevail against it. So grateful, Lord, that you... Um, give us grace and mercy and that you invite us in to, to abide with you and commune with you, Lord, that you desire to draw us near. and So I'm just praying for, for each of us, Lord, that you would just search us and know us. See if there's anything in us, Lord, that would keep us from that way everlasting. Lord, we may we just even tonight allow you the freedom to examine us, to allow your Holy Spirit to transform us. Lord, our desire is just that first and foremost, the very center of our lives would be you, or that first and foremost would would be just this heart that's ripe and ripe for worship. Lord, I just desire so much of your presence just long for your coming Lord, thanks for your word and just your grace and mercy in it. Thanks for guiding us. Lord, thank you, Jesus, for being that way that's walked ahead of us and given us light. And so, Lord, our eyes are on you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.